This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, before we get started, just one um, note. I am away from uh, the home studio. I'm calling what I actually work in the home studio is kind of a joke in itself. But uh, the point being, um, we're all on Zoom right now, myself and my guests. So apologies in advance. This won't sound as uh, perfectly fine as uh, some of these other podcasts do. But Patrick Antonetti is a very, very good producer. So he'll do his best to make this sound as good as possible. But I realized that the sound quality won't be like uh, previous episodes, but we figured just given the topic, it was worth doing a, a quick emergency pod. Um, so uh, try to struggle through if you can with the, uh, the not perfect sound. And then next week we'll be back to our, uh, we'll be back to our, uh, to our, you know, either really good sound, or if you think the sound sucks, usually then it's back to the usual shitty podcast. Anyway, uh, my guests this week, uh, and I really appreciate them coming on, two very accomplished women in the business. Kavitha Davidson is a sports and cultural writer for The Athletic and the host of the Cultural Calculus podcast. Jane McManus is the director of Marist's Center for Sports Communication and a Deadspin Sports columnist. For these purposes, it's very important. Both Kavitha and Jane worked at ESPN for a number of years and obviously have firsthand experience of what it's like to work there. And this will be particularly important for the topic that we're discussing solo topic on this one. And that's the New York times piece on the storm at ESPN over Rachel Nichols comments about Maria Taylor. And I am uh, incredibly pleased to be joined by both Kavitha and Jane Kavitha and Jane. Thank you for uh, making the time today on, uh, um, you know, post-holiday. I appreciate you guys coming on. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, right. thanks for having us. Good to see you. Talk to you again, James. Absolutely. <laughs> this will be good. I'm glad. I want to hear what you have to say about this, Kavitha. I was really glad that you were going to be on. All right. Before we start, um, this podcast is going to be about Jane and Kavitha. I'm going to really do my best to just stay out of the way and listen outside of offering some thoughts about uh, ESPN's uh, once again, historically bad management in this situation. Uh, workplace policies and practices and culture have obviously benefited me as a white male in the sports media. So I'm really just going to sit back and listen, just like um, I hope the rest of the audience and, and hopefully we'll, we'll sort of get some interesting insight from these guys and, and maybe learn something. All right. I'm going to start with you, Kavitha. Let me just sort of give just a quick background of this. Um, as we're taping this on Sunday, the New York Times published a story headlined a disparaging video prompts explosive fallout within ESPN. The subhead of that was in comments still rippling through the network. The reporter, Rachel Nichols, who is white, said Maria Taylor, who is black, earned the job to host the 2020 NBA finals coverage because ESPN was, in quotes, feeling pressure on diversity. Let's start with an overview here. 
How did you view the story when you read it? Um, I had a couple of perhaps conflicting reactions. I think my first one was Rachel kind of said the quiet part out loud. I think a lot of us who are who are women or people of color or you know minorities in this industry know that some of our colleagues and definitely some of our readers and viewers assume that we got our jobs because of some kind of affirmative action call. Um, now, we should also stress that a commitment to diversity and what you might deem as being affirmative action in no way means that a person isn't qualified for that job, right? Um, and frankly, ESPN should have more of a commitment to diversity. So if that was part of um, part of this decision making, then I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. The other reaction I had, and I know Jane can speak to this, is that the dynamics of this industry, and you know, as you mentioned, in particular, ESPN management ends up pitting women against other women for jobs that shouldn't be as limited as they are. Um, and I think that that's a really unfortunate reality that we, it's hard for us to find allies and it's hard for us to find camaraderie when the industry is as cutthroat as it is. And when it seems like there are finite opportunities for us. Jane. Yeah, I, I that's, that's a great point. I feel like I am a, I'm really to recognize what I think are the sexist elements of this story. And, you know, as a, as a white woman in this industry, I feel like, um, you know, I try my best to be an ally. I realize that I do not come to that perspective naturally. So I have to do a lot of listening to people that I respect. Um, and I, and so kind of one of the first reactions was I wanted to kind of hear from, and I, you know, I took to Twitter to kind of see what some women that I respect and listen to on these issues were saying and, Nefertiti Walker, who's a professor at UMass Amherst, uh, started a thread about, um, you know, how every job that she's gotten in academia, starting with adjunct professor, she's had white colleagues say to her that she's the diversity hire, that she got her job because of, you know, because the universities have a crappy track record, just like ESPN, on diversity and and that they're trying to improve it. And so she's the result of that. And And of course, what it does is it makes her feel unqualified. It makes her feel like her talents and her expertise are overlooked, that she is simply checking a box, that she is not being seen as a whole person. She is just being seen as her identity. And I think that's what's so pernicious here is that even as Rachel, as a white woman, I think was able to recognize and, and talks about in the in the tape, she recognizes that these um, that these elements are at play above her at the management level. She is playing into it by not recognizing Maria Taylor as a full, talented person who is uh, qualified for these jobs that she's being discussed for and probably and should get a shot at these jobs because she presents that kind of a talent. And um, and then the other thing I think is that even though she recognizes the dynamics at play, she plays into them because the person that she's talking to is Adam Mendelson, who is LeBron James's longtime personal advisor. And so what she's doing is she's reinforcing her place in those power structures, a place that Maria Taylor should have access to because she's going to need, if she's going to advance, to be able to have conversations with that person without knowing that these are secondary conversations after it's been established that she is there because of her race and not because of her talent. So the this that is that unfortunately is part of the problem. But but like Kavitha, I also recognized in the conversation that what was happening was very much the political game that one is forced to play at ESPN. And, you know, it shouldn't be that Rachel Nichols has to scheme 
for her job. <laughs> it shouldn't be that Maria Taylor has to scheme for her job. It shouldn't be that they're pitted against one another. The decision about who's going to host what should have been made a level above them uh, a long time ago. It shouldn't be up to them individually to try to convince people about this or that. And I think ultimately, um, you know, I just heard the language of people who are very used to having to position themselves in one way or another. And I also know that that was not what I was good at. <laughs> and, and, you know, part of the reason I don't, you know, it may, per- I, I kind of was thinking about it. I was like, wow, if I'd done that more, would I have, would I still be there? I mean, not that I'm very happy where I am. And I, you know, I really um, enjoy the role that I play now and wouldn't want to be back in that because I, I, unfortunately, I think it's not just about how good you are at your job, how much you know about the industry, whether what kind of interviewing skills you have or what kind of a journalist you are. It's also about whether or not you're able to have those conversations and play that game. And that's a, that's a very difficult part of the job. Kavitha, um, Jane sort of just hit on this, but I, I would like to sort of ask you this directly. I'm curious about the things um, women, uh, people of color, women of color at ESPN find most challenging day to day, like things that I might not notice. I wonder if you'd feel comfortable sharing just some of what you encountered when you were there. Sure. I mean, I think I actually had a probably luckier experience. Um, you know, I didn't do a ton of um, like front facing camera work, even though I did some and the teams and the people that I worked with, I was at ESPNW um, and most of the TV I did was on outside the lines, um, you know, led by the great Bob Lee. Um, most of the teams that I interacted with directly treated me very well. Um, but there definitely is, you know, whether you're talking about just the kinds of things that you're interested in or, you know, um, whether like someone brings up Amy Schumer in, con- in a, in a random conversation and, and you kind of, recognize that you're the only person of color in the room and maybe we have a different opinion about her comedy than other than than other colleagues might um you you're definitely always aware of being um of not being you know the majority in the room um and i will also say that especially for someone like maria um or you know you can go down the line jamel um carrie um the like being on camera, being a front facing media personality at a place like ESPN constantly opens you up to not only commentary on your race, but commentary on your appearance, which you can't really separate from the commentary on your race. And with Marie in particular, I remember, I think it was last fall or something that some radio host was making a comment about what she was wearing. And, and, you know, as Jane said, you're, you're constantly aware that you're not seen as a whole person, that your race, um, is and your identity is in many ways, um, you know, has bearing on whether or not you got to that position or whether, um, you know, you got your job based on that. But also as a woman and as a woman of color, you're very aware that your appearance and how pretty you are and, um, you know, how you how you look on camera makes all of that difference, too. Um, and that's that's a very common experience for women in this industry, not only, um, you know, wondering if we're qualified for the jobs we get because of some kind of call for diversity, but also, you know, just sheerly wondering whether, you know, I'm easy to look at on camera and is that the only reason I've gotten this job? Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that it's always difficult when you are, um, when you're one of the few in the room. And I think that these these comments that we've heard from Rachel are things that a lot of us have um, suspected that some of our colleagues probably think of us. And I know, you know, for me, definitely, like I've had readers just say flat out on on Twitter, on my articles, you're only 
like you're the affirmative action hire, basically. Um, and, and that's a really difficult thing to deal with. And, and the other thing that Jane brought up that um, I didn't realize when I was at ESPN, but now a couple of years removed, is absolutely the strategy of playing the game is so integral to success at that company. And I think if you're younger or if you're not as seasoned um, or if you just don't have the personality type to play that game, it can absolutely be very difficult to navigate um, to navigate some of those waters and to try and move up the ladder. Yeah, I, I um that's well said. I want to ask uh, both of you guys to comment on something Jane wrote, but and maybe this is the reality of all of all organizations. But in my sort of experience of reporting and writing about ESPN, um, so much of it a lot of times feels Game of Thrones-ish in that if you have aligned yourself with the right family or the right leader at a certain time your career can soar. Let's just be honest right now. Essentially ESPN is, is Norby Williamson's ESPN. And so people sort of who are aligned with Norby Williamson or people who Norby Williamson likes, maybe that's a better way to phrase it, um, are in a good position. You know, once upon a time it was John Skipper's ESPN or Connor Shell's ESPN. So I, I have found that a lot of times that, and maybe again, this is true of all businesses where the relationship between you and someone with juice often matters more than your own talents, than your sort of your own um, merits. But l- let me get to, um, let me get to something Jane wrote, which, um, which struck on Twitter, which kind of um, struck me. Um, and she wrote about Carrie Champion, Michael Smith and Jamel Hill. And she said, all three are thriving outside of ESPN. And here was the, the point that, that um, I thought was really interesting. She said, but all spoke honestly about race when it served the network. And after found their career trajectories, there diminished. Having been at ESPN, if I were Taylor, I'd be very aware of this, especially as it came time to sign a new contract. She had ESPN's back at a crucial time last summer, but it's a question of whether providing a real voice and reporting will be rewarded when the crisis passes. Jane, what were you thinking about when you tweeted that out? Yeah, I think that, you know, I look around at the Black colleagues that I've had at ESPN who are some are still at the company and, and many are not. And, you know, many of them, you know, Jamel, uh, Michael and Carrie, but then also, you know, Justina Anderson or Jim Trotter or Mike Hill has, has uh, did a video yesterday talking about some of his experience. And I think all of them felt like their willingness to speak out when the company needed to have a credible black voice on cultural issues for different things that were being covered, whether it was Colin Kaepernick or George Floyd or anything like that, um, that they were willing to do that and they used their credibility for the company. And then when it came time for that loyalty to be returned, or at least, or even that respect to be returned, that it really kind of wasn't. And, um, you know, and that the, 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 political winds had changed and that people had moved to a different issue. And so putting yourself out there, which I think it's in some ways kind of an unnatural, you know, I, I think, you know, or at least my experience, I can speak of my experience. I knew when I was talking about domestic violence and covering those issues, that it was helpful for ESPN to have a woman in that position. And I also knew that it was going, I also suspected that it was going to damage my career overall, that I'd become defined by that issue and that it would be difficult for me to move on. And I very much tried to cover other things and, 
and continue to do the work on domestic violence. But I found that once ESPN decided it wasn't so interested in covering that anymore, that that affected my trajectory. And I think, so I'm extrapolating a bit, but given the conversations that I've had with Carrie and Michael and Jamel and Jacina um, and others there, I, I get the sense that, um, that there's a, a similar feeling that, um, that ESPN doesn't, doesn't, um, that again, and maybe it's the, you know, the next, it becomes somebody else's ESPN, right? And that the new prevailing ethos is not interested in elevating those voices anymore. But nobody ever tells you when you're at ESPN, they all tell you you're doing a great job. And I kind of think that we can see this a bit with Maria Taylor and Rachel Nichols. And I imagine that both of them have people who are telling them that they're going to be the host or that they deserve this position or that, you know, something is coming for them and all they have to do is X, Y, and Z. Or otherwise, why would someone feel like they're entitled to a position? And I do think that's where people kind of get pitted against one another is um, this idea of you don't know everything that's happening is happening behind closed doors that you don't have access to. And so it's very difficult to know where you stand or where you're going to stand in six months, even though you get the sense very much that people are already making those decisions. It's a really good point. And Kavitha, I want you to just respond to Jane, but again, the one thing that um, I've always noted um, when it comes to ESPN, and and I think this is probably true of other sports networks is on our talents who have direct, direct communication or direct paths to the decision makers in that company have longer, more fruitful, bigger contracts. Um, A lot of times those lines can be direct where the talent on air talent has a direct relationship with the, let's say the president, or they have a very powerful agent who, um, who has a direct relationship with, you know, the, the inner leaders of the SPN and, and that's how they almost manage up that, you know, they sort of do a really good job of, of managing above them. And I know I respect where Jane's coming from, because if you're just sort of a, even a well-paid on-air uh, talent who just doesn't have those lines of communications, you're almost sort of playing in a, in a different world than, than those other people. But, um, but I did, I'm interested, Kavitha, what your uh, thoughts are to what Jane just said. Yeah. I mean, to your, to your point about access and about those kinds of connections, I mean, I learned that after the fact, and that's, you know, one of those things where I remember very vividly when I first joined ESPN, having, I, I was reached out to by an agent at CAA and I didn't know anything about this world. I didn't know really what an agent did, whether it was necessary, whether it was worth the cost, all of that. And I asked one of my colleagues um, who was a, a white woman um, on our personality um, at ESPN, no longer at the company. And she basically said that eh, agents aren't necessary. You don't really need one. They're not worth the price, all of that. She had an agent and um, I later found out she was negotiating her contract at the time. So um, there was a little bit of a, of a conflict in the advice that she gave me, but it, <laughs> yeah, does, no it does make a huge difference to have that person in the room. Like when you work at ESPN, having an agent pays for itself just by having someone in the talent office for you. Um, and nobody really tells you that when you get there. So I do think that that, you know, that's a huge part of these conversations. Another thing, you know, to what to what Jane said is that ESPN is such a sprawling place and has such high level talent across the board that it can trot out, you know, a bunch of 
very respected black voices when diversity matters and when they need to um, when they need to pre- you know present this front of having this commitment to diversity. They do this. They do the same thing with um, you know high level women talent, especially when it comes to tennis coverage, for example. Um, you know. Rightfully so, ESPN is praised for having um, a lot of women who cover tennis um, and who cover other sports as well. Um, but that doesn't, you know, it can't stop there. And I think that that's really what, um, you know, what this kind of issue is coming down to. To Jane's point, you know, you talk about Jamel and Carrie and Michael Smith and, you know, going down down the line. I think one of the things that we've seen is not just that, you know, some of these voices are brought out to present this front, but also that there just isn't institutional support or protectionism. Um, when you, when you know that you're, you're, you know, you're bringing out, um, you know, black voices to talk about race or to talk about Colin Kaepernick or something like that, that there's going to be some kind of pushback, some kind of backlash from the, from the public and that they deserve to have um, some kind of institutional support. And I always think about when the six, when Jamel and Michael debuted on SportsCenter um, and the immediate reaction from, from, from viewers was, oh, this is black SportsCenter <laughs> or, you know, like this is, this is, this is just part of, you know, ESPN being, you know, the woke crowd or, or something like that. And I, I don't know, I didn't hear any kind of pushback from ESPN or any kind of commitment to what this show could have been or was supposed to be um, beyond that. And, uh, you know, I think that that's really where some of these failings lie. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I want to ask you guys um, how you... Um, how you feel about now, again, understanding that we never would have gotten this conversation, um, which was illegally taped. So, so let's be clear on that. But Jane, I'll start with you. Um, how do you, how do you feel about um, Rachel Nichols discussing things with Adam Mendelson who reps, um, who reps some people she covers? I, I think as someone in your position, you know, teaching journalism now, I think there's just value in, in your um, thoughts on this, the reality is, you know, we, we all have relationships with people um, we cover. And sometimes those conversations do like go away from subject um, interviewer. But I, I think, I think it's worth at least for the, the couple of people who really care about the inside of this, just to get a perspective from somebody who's teaching journalism right now, just how you saw that. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I just, to, to start, you know, Rachel has been in this business a long time and she has relationships with people. Um, but in that conversation, she is actually appealing to Mendelssohn, not as a source, but as a, an agent almost like getting free advice from an agent um, about her own situation. They're talking about her position at ESPN as it relates to her own job. They're not talking about, um, they're not talking about LeBron James or any of the players that she covers. They're not, she's not getting, she's not doing any reporting that's going to benefit her necessarily 
in terms of what she brings to the show, which is, I, I think, why you would call some as a journalist, why you would call somebody like that. And I do think that it kind of is. Um, yes, there's a casualness when you have spoken to somebody for 20 years and they get to know you a little bit more and you get to know them a little bit more. But I think also that, you know, it, it journalism has become much more of an access game than you and I, Richard, might be comfortable with, um, where it is very much about trading information. You know, Adam Mendelssohn, by knowing what the political um, uh, chessboard yeah, looks like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's he, he. I'm sorry to interrupt you. To say, Go ahead. Adam Mendelson gets a lot of value out of knowing who the players are at ESPN, right? I mean, exactly. he's got he's got he's got major figures that he reps, and that's that's how he makes his living. So I, you know, there's a, there's value, and I, again, I, I'm I, I'm I'm a realist here. Like this stuff happens, but there's value on both sides here. Like every someone, both both sides of this equation are getting something out of this. Yes, but none of it has to do with journalism. Correct. And none of it has to do with being a reporter. And so, I mean, again, I can, can I go through my index of every conversation I've ever had with an agent and say for sure that nothing like that has come up? No, I couldn't. I couldn't say that for sure. But at the same time, I recognize that it is, that is a gray area when it comes to a conversation that you're having with a source. Um, because it's not about them, it's about you and you're giving them information that is, I mean, it seems like it's not something that ESPN would want her to talk about. And, you know, what ESPN wants is not necessarily the beginning of the end of your job as a journalist. But at the same time, you know, there, that is proprietary information when it comes to the chessboard at ESPN. Kavitha, I want to ask you, um, in the New York Times piece, um, an ESPN spokesperson declined to make Jimmy Pitaro available for an interview. What, what's Jimmy Pitaro's role here in terms of speaking out? And uh, I mean, nobody is required to speak to the New York Times, but that's a strategic decision by the head of ESPN not to um, publicly sort of say something here or publicly sort of indicate like, here's here's our, you know, here's our plan for this. Here's what we think about this. Um, uh, that was... I don't want to say interesting. It's sort of such a boring word, but it, it's a it's a it's a strategic decision by by Disney. I don't even know if it's ESPN at this point. Disney Public Relations not to make the person who ultimately is responsible for this mess, in my opinion, that that's that's your job is to um, is to figure out how to make these sort of talents work. A strategic decision not to talk publicly. I wonder how you saw that. Yeah, it's it's certainly a choice. Um, and, you know, you're right that Jimmy Pitaro isn't obligated to comment on this. Um, but I think to me, it, it says a lot about either him or ESPN or Disney PR not knowing quite what to say or quite how to handle this, what the correct play here would be. I also think about kind of the juxtaposition of Jimmy Pitaro and John Skipper, his predecessor, um, who was rightfully... Um, lauded for years for being a champion of women and black women and people of color um, on camera and at ESPN. And it's it's interesting, you know, Jimmy doesn't have that same reputation. Um, and it's interesting that he wouldn't want to come out and kind of affirm himself as that champion or as that ally, um, or at least just to clean up a little bit of this mess that, like you said, he's, he's responsible for as the person at the top. So, um, yeah, I think that this just kind of the decision not to comment on this screams of 
not having any idea what the right play is or what, you know, what would assuage all, all the sides here instead of, you know, really just what would be the right thing to do or say. Can I just add to that? Yeah, before ahead, ESPN management had a year to try to figure out how to manage this situation and they did not do it up to the point of the end of Maria Taylor's contract in the middle of the NBA finals. I mean, this is a situation that, you know, much like Naomi Osaka, not wanting to address the media um, at uh, Roland Garros earlier this year, this is a situation that should have been caught much earlier and a solution found and a negotiation made to make sure that all parties were comfortable at a, so that when the crucial moment arrives, it doesn't all blow up. And that is exactly what's happened. And I think it's interesting that this is going to look bad for both Rachel Nichols, as we've seen. It's not going to do Maria Taylor any favors in future contract negotiations, even though I think the public is very much on her side. And But who isn't going to look bad in this? I mean, ESPN management, it's a faceless entity. Those guys are still going to be able to get their tee times at their golf courses. They're still going to be able to get the reservations at the restaurant. They're still going to be able to make their mortgages. The people who are the decision makers are going to face no real consequences going forward. That's, listen, you've, you've, you've made a great point. I mean, the, the, the consequences they'll face are just bad optics. But here's the, the reality of this. How catastrophically bad have you handled the situation where you had a year to sort of figure something out and it ends up on the front page of the New York times website. Like that is just so that that is such horrific management where you allow the situation to start to fester, like letting talent. Like, I I, I mean, I am a as pro talent as it, as it gets, you know, probably to my detriment because I think you see where a lot of management leaks go. Um, But how do you, at a certain point, like your job is to like sit people down in a room, right? And like, just say like, we're going to make this work. Let's iron out all our differences here in this room. So it's on the top of the ESPN's management, the Jimmy Pataro, you know, Norby Williamson level. It's on the NBA coordinating producer level. And then it's, it's on everybody who sort of is, is part of this bleep show to be, to be very honest, to like sort of let it get to where like this story gets to, you know, the most influential newspaper, arguably, in the world. And that's probably an interesting debate that all three of us could have as, as to whether, like, you know, is it a story? Is it, you know what I'm trying to say? You know, is it a tabloid story? But d- the fact that it got there is just, is, is, I can't say it's mind boggling because I, a lot of times ESPN is very reactive, as you guys know, as opposed to um, proactive. So there's a couple more things I want to um, hit on before we, um, before we finish um this up kavitha one of the things that i think is a big takeaway for me um and i read this paragraph and i just like it didn't surprise me but man it just hit the only person known to be punished was kayla johnson a digital video producer who told espn human resources that she had sent the video to taylor johnson who was black was suspended for two weeks without pay and later was given less desirable tasks at work she no longer works the espn i'm reading that from the new york times website the only person at the moment in all of this, to be disciplined, this sort of hits on what Jane is talking about, is a is is a um, a digital video producer, right? Out of all these characters we're talking about, sort of at the, at the bottom of the food chain, probably makes the least amount of money. Who, you know, I, it seems to me was sort of doing a solid for someone she either was a friend of or respected, Maria Taylor. She's the one who gets suspended for two weeks without pay. As you know, the history of ESPN in terms of suspensions, what a joke. 
and now is out of ESPN. So the, the collateral damage, like who, hit, who got the most collateral damage here? Like the person with the least power. Incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because here we have a young up and coming black woman working at this company who was caught in the crossfire, essentially. And, um, you know, I think that this the larger point here is all of the ways in which, you know, she wasn't fired outright, like you said, and like you read from the New York Times report, she was suspended for two weeks. And then, um, you know, they cut into her duties and her day to day job. And it just speaks to all of the ways that women and people of color are slowly forced out of this industry. Um, and it's it's the thousand cuts kind of thing. And and the fact that nobody, nobody above this woman's level has been disciplined for this, um, for this complete mismanagement is extremely striking. And, you know, to your to your earlier point, you know, Rachel Nichols started the jump with her apology um, by basically saying, you know, the number one rule in journalism is not to make yourself the story, not to become the story. And absolutely, Rachel is part of the story here. But ESPN has made itself this story as well. And, you know, to your earlier point, nobody at the top there has taken any responsibility for that. Yeah, Jane made that point. So, Jane, I want to ask you, and it could be the police follow up on Jane after she responds. Um, what do you think happens now with Maria Taylor? Or, or maybe if you were, um, I don't even know, Jane, if you, maybe you are friends with Maria Taylor or no Maria Taylor. But, you know, there's now a decision to be made here for her um, her contract is coming up very, very quickly. This story has now just blown up publicly where so many people beyond sports are aware of it. Um, her, her, how do I sort of be diplomatic here? Like her, her salary was reported on. And obviously I don't know how that sourcing was, but like I can take a pretty good guess having covered these guys for a long time that who knows salaries? Well, ESPN management, no salaries, the talent office, no salaries and Maria Taylor's reps, no salaries. My sense is Maria Taylor's reps are not leaking what her salary is. So, you know, there was a clear, basically there was a clear intent to try to make Maria Taylor look greedy and like, just be happy with, you know, this TK millions of dollars. These are all lottery ticket jobs. All these people are dealing in realities that most of us don't deal with, but that's, you're worth what they pay you. You're, you're, you're worth what, you know, you're worth what you can get at a place that, that, that pays like a Stephen A. Smith, eight, $9 million. So Jane, what do you do if you're Maria Taylor? Cause it seems to me you have two options. One, you could stay and try to get as much money as you can there and, and be a good soldier knowing full well, there are people at that organization who absolutely do not have your back, do not have your best interests at heart, but you're making a shitload of money. Or you walk, you walk out of a job, which you really probably liked and, and events that you love to, to cover and you go to a new place. And while that new place may be great, it's a whole new life. It's a whole new change. Um, the, the irony is there's not really a good option here, but she has to ultimately make a choice. Soon. Yeah. I, I, if I try to put myself in retailer shoes, I'm, I'm so mad. I can barely speak. You know, that would be my initial reaction first, because you know, that story was leaked to the post two days before the New York Times story was going to run. And the headline on it was like T Taylor asked for Stephen A. Smith money or something like that, um, painting her as a diva. And then also, and this is what is so pernicious, devaluing her and saying, well, but ESPN is not going to pay that. And the top offer on the table now is one to two million or something like that. So 
it's a smear in that story, in addition to being like a, you know, a, a, a disclosure of what the behind the scenes of the co- contract are. And, and just to, so to me, that is so damaging. That is so damaging to Maria Taylor. And, and also it's a case in point. It does not matter how hard you work. It is, does not matter how talented you are. Your career can be affected by things completely outside of your control and in the most unfair way. Like Maria Taylor is a generational talent. The way that she, her, the chemistry that she has with people that she's speaking to, her, you know, the knowledge that she brings to the table, the experience that she has as a former athlete, like all of these things. Um, and how telegenic she is. She is a generational talent. And here she is in the crosshairs of a situation that she had nothing to do with and has nothing to do with her talent. So just that being said is, is the start of this conversation. Um, but outside of ESPN, you will never make as much money. The profile will not be as high. There simply is not, there is not another platform right now. If you love sports and certain events, you, you can't cover the events at a different place. You can't cover the National College Football Championship elsewhere. Nobody else has it. Right. And if you end up going to like a CBS to cover the NCAA tournament or something, then that's, that's kind of it. You're doing that in college games, doing that college games in the USO, whatever it is that, you know, the, the particular roundup of different sporting events is for a particular network, but none of them, none of them have the round the clock coverage, the access, the, uh, the platform that ESPN does and the money. Let's be honest. Nobody else does. So you either have to figure out, you're going to go back to ESPN you know, go back into the, what the snake pit Mendelssohn said, yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, probably one of the accurate. most accurate things said yeah. right on that tape, um, go back into the snake pit and try to, you know, spend spend another, you know, three to four years, you know, breaking that money in to your bank account. Um, but also having to fight for your job every single day. Um, or you go somewhere else and, you know, you, you do something that you value more, you know, maybe you do something, you know, for example, you know, I am not making the same amount of money that I made at ESPN, but I love what I do. And I think you could probably talk to a bunch of people. I find a lot more value in what I'm doing now than what I did at ESPN. Um, and, and I think, you know, you talk to Jamel or you talk to Michael or you talk to Carrie and you, you will find them that they say something very similar that, you know, you're the minute you walk out the door, your peace of mind returns <laughs> the chaos that's going on wondering who is about to stab you in the back you know what management thinks of you whether or not somebody's going to you know drop a story in the post about what you make um that goes away the day you leave and you know and it's a, it's a it's a moment of clarity for a lot of people at ESPN but at the same time you will never have the same platform you'll never make the same money it's a real i think for somebody maria's age I, you know i'd take the money and stay at ESPN that's what i would do and i would realize that your life is going to be difficult every single day while you're there. Kavitha? Yeah, I uh, I mean, I, I, I identify so much with what Jane said, because I mean, both of us have navigated life after ESPN, right? And it's, you know, and I love working at The Athletic, but, you know, we don't have, we obviously don't have all of the media rights to all of the sports is the first thing. Um, and and you're never going to make as much money as, as, you, as you can at ESPN and the access and the platform and all of that um, is obvious. Uh, 
Another thing that I think we need to point out from this New York Post story that I think we all agree was probably a very strategic leak was that it was also framed as not just how much money she makes or what the offer on the table was, but it was also framed as at a time when ESPN is cost cutting because of the pandemic or, you know, at a time when Disney is putting pressure on ESPN to manage its costs and and asking other high level talent to take pay cuts. You know, it was very much framed as this, you know, who does she think she is kind of thing. Um, and and that's so hard to read. And that's I can't imagine how hard that is to read about yourself. Um, and this question of what she does next, it, it very much reminds me of, you know, people who go into high level finance jobs who hate their job, but make enough money before they turn 30, that then they can do whatever they want with the rest of their life. Right. Um, I think if I'm Maria, like Jane said, I, I take the money for the short term, um, recognizing that, you know, people that I work with don't have my back um, and that the company that I work for is going to um, employ these kinds of um, these kinds of strategies if, if it if it needs to, because it's a company. There's no such thing as um, a company having loyalty to you, unfortunately. Um, but at the same time, people like Jamel and Carrie and Michael have presented a framework for what life after ESPN could look like. And if you've made enough money that you're comfortable not making that kind of money um, in the future, but you you know, your peace of mind and your daily happiness is, is, is important to you above all else, then there is, there is a path that people have, have set. There's a precedent um, for what that could look like and for being, um, you know, just as respected and, um, and just as involved in the industry as you were at ESPN. So, I mean, I don't, I don't really know what, what I do if I'm, if I'm Maria, other than, you know, like Jane said, given her age, taking the money and then figuring out in a couple of years where I actually want to be. Um, one thing that was both, and both of you guys, I appreciate that perspective. Um, I think we're all in agreement, basically. I, I will say that ESPN, like it is true that they, they are asking talents, um, for sure to take pay cuts. I mean, you know, Kenny Main told me that 61%. I know that they've asked at least one NFL person, uh, well-known person to take a pay cut. So, so that part is true, but, but Kavith and Jane, and like, here's the reality that you guys know. Um, Yeah. That's true. At the same time, all of these companies, when they want to pay someone or when they want to acquire certain talents, there is always money. And I will guarantee that high-level executives at ESPN haven't volunteered to cut their pension or cut their Disney preferred stock. You know what I'm saying? So it's in all of these companies, there's always choices. And ultimately, if there is a salary course correction, well, that is a, that is a decision made by someone. And that decision, like, is still targeted and specific to certain talent. And other talent will not be asked to take pay cuts, and they will continue to hire. So, like, what I've always said is, like, again, if, if, they, if a company like that wants you, they will pay you sort of whatever it takes to get you. If a company like that wants certain rights, they just pay the NFL billions of dollars. Like, they'll, they'll get it. All this money is sort of fungible and... And, and, and you can sort of, you know, put it into the silo. And then really quickly, as far as Mary Taylor, I have an, I'm with you guys on this. Um, I think I would, honestly, I would try to rake them for as much cash as I could. Um, and I would sort of go to work every day, um, um, being a um, good teammate, sort of, you know, and it, like sort of in, in person. But in the back of my mind, I would always sort of basically think that, nobody in management really has my back here 
And so I would just do my job to the best of my abilities with the larger sort of thought that like, ultimately I have no invested, you know, I'm, I'm not invested in this place uh, beyond just being a worker. And then I would have my agents or, uh, or I think in Maria's case as a manager um, looking elsewhere in the next two to three years for the, the next up. I don't think I could ever, if I'm Maria Taylor in particular, I don't think I could ever trust ESPN management again. I'll just be honest. Like no, I, I would take, I would take their money for sure, but I, I could never, I could never truly trust them. That, that's sort of how I look at it. And the other thing, Richard, is the story in the New York Post said that she was, they, they were going to offer her between one to $2 million a year, I believe. She's worth a hell of a lot more than that. Yeah, I, and, I'd be very honest with you. I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I'm the first to admit, I, I, I don't know what her current contract is, and I don't know what he, she has honestly been offered. I, I just know that, again, the talent office has a lot of discretion, and, and there's always money to be had. Sorry, Jane. I didn't want to no, that's, no, that's 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 just what I wanted to say. And I, the other thing I wanted to say is, if she weren't a black woman in this industry, but she, you know, um, I think I, I don't think there would be a question as to her worth. I think she, that she would be getting that this wouldn't be the story that it is. I, I, you know, I always wonder whether or not race and identity are going to um, make it feel like she doesn't deserve as much as she actually deserves. And so I'm always on guard about that. You're worth what they'll pay you. Like, you know, like some people will say like, I'm not worth what the athletics paying me. You're probably right. Like, I don't know. Or some people will say you're underpaid. Hey, you're probably right. I am. I mean, like, it, yeah, but you have to, but I know you, you know have saying? to it's, realize it's, it's all subjective though. It's a, it's a, it's, 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 it's subjective based on, based on either the company or the person evaluating what the salary is. It's yeah. We as a country seem to believe in um, free market principles until it comes to paying talent or, <laughs> or players. So. <laughs> right, well, but right. I also think Richard, you have to take into effect that black women and women of color have, have particularly been devalued in the marketplace. If you look at the way people have been paid traditionally, you're going to, you know, oh, well, she doesn't have a family. He has a family, so we have to pay more. We are still dealing with the tendrils of those inequities. I think it particularly comes into play when you have a young woman like Maria Taylor, who is a black woman in this industry. She is going to be fighting against not only the upper management, her colleagues for a place at ESPN. She's also going to be fighting against all of those traditional ideas about what a black woman is worth. And so I just want to point out, she's worth a hell of a lot more than one to $2 million. And I hope ESPN pays her. Yeah. yeah and that's why it was also ahead, like, that's why it was also so pernicious. I know that Adam Mendelson doesn't actually have any power when it comes to contract negotiations from the management side of ESPN, but that's why, you know, some of his comments to Rachel in that tape were, were so pernicious just the dismissiveness of him, you know, having to deal with me too and black lives matter. The idea that this is an inconvenience instead of something that systemically we need to correct both in this industry and in this country. Um, and both of those movements can speak to how people, women and black women like Maria Taylor have been devalued. Um, so, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's just really, um, it, it's really unfortunate, but it's also not like, we shouldn't be surprised that this is the conversation we're having um, because this is just, this is just where we are. Yeah. And again, I, the, I, I think though, here's what I would say from my experience. And, and again, my experience as a white male in this business, it means absolutely nothing to this conversation. It just quite frankly does. The only thing perspective I can add is, in most of my jobs, when I've had to sort of negotiate salary, if that's even the right word, I have benefited from the person on the other side um, being someone who sort of vouched for me or vetted for me. Um, usually that person was a, uh, in, in the circumstances of negotiating, a white male. For instance, when I took the job in Canada, I had 
at the time, the co-host of my show, the co-host, the host of my show, Bob McCown, is the most famous sports broadcaster in Canada. He was the one who told management to like, you know, I want this guy, get this guy, pay him what we have to pay him. Like, those are the kind of things that like, you know, that the Adam Mendelsons of the world sort of know that that's the reality of the situation. And if you have, you know, somebody in management who has the power to pay you, like, this is where I'm talking about, Jane, like all those dollar figures are bullshit because like ultimately someone can make the decision to, to go over a budget. You know, someone can make the decision to pay you X. And if, quite frankly, if Jimmy Pataro decided that Maria Taylor was worth $10 million, she would get $10 million. There, 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 is no, there is no such thing as cost cutting in that situation. You know what I'm saying? Like it's all or it's maybe arbitrary is not the right word, but it's all subjective. It's all ultimately decided by um, human beings. Kavitha, let me, let's end with this. If you were ESPN management and God help you, if you are, because, you know, <laughs> I don't think uh, user. Know. Yeah. Well, I'm saying, I don't know if Kavitha wants to uh, summer, summer in Connecticut all the time on the beach. She, she she's <laughs> always strikes me as a New York city type. Um, so like what, what do you think could be done here to, I don't know, to, 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 to do your best over the next two to three years to, uh, in, within the NBA circles to make this work. Like even someone who writes about this, like me, like, I don't know what the perfect solution is. Like you're going to split NBA countdown again. Like who's going to get the, the studio hosting job. Like how is there, do you see a way out of this to like at least calm the waters here and to maybe get to a better place with all these talents? I mean, even before this entire controversy, ESPN put itself in a difficult position by splitting countdown and the jump, yeah. right? So yeah. so that in itself is is a problem that they do have to reconcile. I think first and foremost, I throw all of the money at Maria Taylor, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> um, yeah, like, I mean, you should believe that she deserves the dollar figure, whatever it is that she's requesting, because she does. But at a very baseline level, I, I, I pay to try and make this problem go, to, go away. Um, I think over the next couple of years, though, there needs to be, you know, there just needs to be a much deeper commitment to supporting the Maria Taylors at ESPN and to making, you know, because we, I don't think we have this conversation. I don't think Rachel Nichols necessarily feels the way that she does if this doesn't seem isolated or strategic to a moment in time when a commitment to diversity was good business. Um, and so to have that happen over the course of a couple of years with more than one um, person of, of Maria Taylor's talent level, um, I think is, is really important to at least, at least presenting the image that, that you are actually committed to these things that you say you're committed to and that you are learning from mistakes that, that lead to a situation like what we have now. Jen, I'll ask you the same question. And, you know, I think you sort of hit on this too uh, in one of these other topics that like, you know, for as, for as good as ESPN has been about giving, giving women opportunity and women of color opportunity, th they're also still in many ways, don't you think, trapped in the paradigm of a uh, woman moderator and then two males on the left and right debating X. I remember talking to you, like how long it seemed to take for a woman to be a uh, you know, multiple women to be panelists on the sports reporters. Like it, it's, you know, again, like in many ways th they are at the forefront of this and doing well, uh, particularly let's say their women's sports coverage, but then in other ways, they, they still have a ways to go on all this stuff. I, I think As we all do. I'm, 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 not, I'm, by the way, I'm not dismissing the athletic or SI or, or sports net or any place I've worked at as well. Just go. I'm sorry, Jane. 
Well, some do better than others. And I think, I think a lot of it has to do with the financial pressures that certain companies are under. I remember in the late 1990s, you know, every newspaper in this country had a diversity initiative right. where they were trying to hire people. And then when the money went and they had no hires and they had no room to do anything, all of a sudden that initiative went out the window. It was a luxury that no one was willing to actually pay for when it came time to, to put their money where their mouth was. And, um, and I, think, I think what's happened here is, yes, I, I, I think that ESPN has a has a real issue because it doesn't know what to do with talented women generally who don't fit that host or sideline reporter mold. And, you know, I think look at Sarah Spain and Katie Nolan. Both of those women could have their own shows by now. They are that kind of talent. And instead they're 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 they've been reduced, you know, Sarah for 10 years to kind of, you know, adjacent role on other shows. And, you know, that's just my opinion. I don't know if if everybody you know, agrees with me on that or not. But I do think, um, you know, neither of those women really want to be a host. They're not exactly a traditional analyst. They're certainly somebody who, um, you know, is entertaining, you know, they're, they're entertaining and they're knowledgeable about sports. Um, I think they've done a good job making, you know, Mina Kimes an analyst. Josina Anderson was the first woman to have that NFL analyst position. And she was dealt very roughly with, I think. Um, and, and, you know, could still be in that role. She breaks news on Twitter all the time. It's amazing that, um, you know, that she wasn't valued more, I think, as well. So um, I think it is this idea across the board of incorporating women and not just using them, you know, like in some ways, you know, I was part of the first all-female sports reporters and the first all-female first take and all of those things which were celebratory about the roles that women could play at the company, but were one-offs. And, you know, and when you make it a one-off where, you know, you have your Black talent um, sit behind a desk and talk about their own experience growing up or people that they knew or painful experiences that they've had, and then, you know, don't follow that up by giving people real power behind the scenes as well. Um, these problems are just going to crop up again and again. Um, so I, you know, I don't know if it prompts, self- I don't know that there's a financial uh, incentive for real, true self um self-discovery and self-reflection at the company level. They make a lot of money, um, basically positioning their programming to white men. So until they're forced to change that, I, I don't know that I would expect it. Kavitha, I'm happy to give you the last word here. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with everything that Jane said. And I think that, I mean, the issue of the limited roles, the types of limited roles that women tend to get in sports media and at ESPN is something that I've written about a lot. Um, the idea that especially women of color are, are facilitating conversations instead of participating in them is still problematic. Um, and and they're just, there is room for all of us. There is room for Amina and room for Katie and room for Maria and for Sarah. Um, and, and again, just to you know, kind of bring it full circle into what we started this conversation talking about the idea that two women have to be pitted against each other at a company the size of ESPN with all of the opportunities that exist there um, is is really what this comes down to. And it's unfortunate. And I think like Jane, I'm a little bit cynical as to whether there is really incentive to fix this problem from you know a systemic and institutional level, because at the end of the day, ESPN kind of operates as a monopoly and will continue to um, will continue to make money and will continue to have access to all of the sports. Kavitha Davidson is a sports and culture writer for The Athletic and the host of the Culture Calculus podcast. Jane McManus is the director of the Marist Center for Sports Communication and a Deadspin Sports columnist. You can follow both of their 
uh, work. Um, certainly, Kavitha's on The Athletic. Uh, follow Jane on Twitter for uh, her uh, announcements on what she's doing at Marist, at Deadspin, and her other musings, probably about house hunting and England, <laughs> whatever she's talking about at the time. All right, I'm going to keep you guys on as I do this incredible close. You know, usually I just say goodbye to my guests, but what a treat for you two to to hear a mediocre talent like myself finish this show. Uh, once again, thank you as always to Patrick Antonetti for producing this podcast. Uh, thanks to the audience for listening to this. I know the quality of the, the sound isn't great, but, uh, but but it'll be better next week. If you like these kind of conversations, and both Jane and Kavitha have been uh, guests on this podcast before, and they will be again, head to the uh, Sports Media with Richard Dyche archive page wherever you listen to this on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, leave us a, a nice note and a five-star review. That's how this podcast continues. The podcast before this was Mike Golick, speaking of the ESPN talents, who uh, who left. Um, he was very, very honest about leaving ESPN, why it happened, his dealings with management. I really appreciate his time. I'm not sure he's ever gone that deep with anybody else. Before that, uh, Michael Kay and John Wertheim both had uh, books out that you should check out. Before that, Jamel Hill, who was mentioned in this podcast, and Tom Hannafin. Uh, better known as Tom Phillips, who uh, was a longtime WWE broadcaster. All right, so uh, that gives you a sense, at least, of the last uh, couple podcasts that we've done. Thanks to everybody, Cadence 13, for supporting this. Thanks again to Patrick Antonetti, and thanks to you, uh, the audience, for listening to this. Obviously, uh, none of this happens without you guys. And we'll see you soon, once again, on the Sports Media Podcast.